Hello, and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I am Neuropancer, and I've never scooped in my life. And I'm Josh, still Netrunner's okayest player. If you're just joining us for the very first time on Slums Cast, this podcast will not make you a better at Netrunner, and it also will not make you a better person. Ten episodes, Josh. I think that's the first thing we need to talk about today. This is our tenth episode of Slums Cast. Yeah, who would have thought that we could have made it here? A podcast about being bad at Netrunner. I guess there's more of a market for this type of content than we really thought there would be, huh? Do you think that that's people acknowledging that they're bad at Netrunner or people who are good at Netrunner actively trying to get worse? You know, I think it's definitely the second thing. Yeah. They're really just trying to decrease the efficiency across the board and really get down here with us. Either that or they're uh, they're hate listening, I guess. Either way, that's fine. Honestly, when we started this, I assumed we would have maybe three episodes in us. And I thought that the way it would end was hordes of Netrunner players would break down the doors of my apartment and tear me limb from limb. So I'm glad that we've made it all the way to 10 without that happening. Yeah, you're wrong on both counts, which, you know, honestly is on brand. We were on brand before we even knew what the brand was. I love that. Yeah, so 10 episodes. Jeez. Um, oh, and uh, by the way, I'm here today. Oh! You're going to introduce me? So yeah, sorry about that. We are joined today by a very special guest. Josh, do you want to introduce our guest? Today on the Slums Cast, our 10th episode, we have a very special guest and this person is in a very good position to provide what everybody in the community wants, which is some scoops. It is the lead designer of Nisei, June Cuervo. How are you doing today? I'm great. The degree to which I'm looking forward to people finally being able to see Gateway, it's very hard to contain. I've basically been forced to not think about Gateway for the last two months, so I, I don't explode. That's got to be tough. From the very small piece of it that I've seen, the pressure must be immense. Thank you for joining us today so we can help release some of that pressure and introduce people to some of what's coming down the line. Happy to be here. And for context to the uh, listeners here, we have a couple of things coming down the line here. You'll get to get a first, well, not peek at, it's it's not a visual medium, it's, it's audio. That brings us directly into our intro statement. As always, we have an intro statement and not an intro question. The intro statement is new cards are coming out soon. Very exciting. Yeah. That's too accurate. I think we're going to need to cut the feed. Didn't make it far this week. To make sure that everyone listened to this episode, because when people hear their scoops, I imagine that might invite some people who don't usually listen to Slumscast or potentially who don't know exactly what's going on and just heard that there are scoops. Let's make sure that everyone's on the same page. What is system update? What is system gateway? What do we have to look forward to in the near future, Netrunner-wise? System Upgate is an introductory base product for all Nisei's future releases. It's non-rotating, I believe, or at least like it's going to be around for forever, basically, because we're just going to have this as our cornerstone product for whenever you want to get somebody new into Netrunner, you're going to be able to play a game of Gateway with them. And Gateway within it will contain what we view as the most well-curated, well-thought-out, and carefully constructed introduction to Netrunner that the game has ever seen, at least in my opinion. We've built Gateway holistically 
to be something that you can have as like sort of with you, you can take to your local game stores, you can have as sort of like a mini board game on your shelf. Part of that is the dual deck component of Gateway, which is really emphasizing this idea of just like having two ready to play decks that are actually curated to teaching a new player how to play. Historically, we've had a lot of things like Snare is in the intro products from the previous makers of Netrunner, and it would say to not give them the tag, right? Because it was like too confusing, like it adds more mechanics. There's lots of rough edges like that. And we just wanted to really pare down Netrunner to its essence for when you're learning the game. And I think as we all know by now, Netrunner is an enormously complex game to teach, let alone play at any reasonable degree of skill. So, you know, with that being said, it was like very much our entire mission as an organization to figure out what foot forward do we want this to be when someone sees Gateway and plays their first game of Netrunner? What kind of Netrunner game do we want it to be? And what mechanics do we include in that first few games to ensure that you're getting a lot of those core elements that you would expect in a Netrunner game, but it's simpler to sort of parse and understand for a beginner. I love that mission. Having relatively recently had people that work in the board game channel at Slack be like, you know, I've heard of Netrunner. Michael, I know that you play Netrunner. Can you teach me to play Netrunner? And I'm like, yes, once I take apart three different decks that I have built because I don't have anything specifically for teaching new players put together. I love having just a clear experience to teach people Netrunner and to have them learn how to play the game rather than me saying, I don't know. Uh, maybe this Val deck is kind of simple enough. And then I realized that it has some cards in it that are just bonkers. One thing I love about the Netrunner community so much is they've really stepped up to produce like simple decks, like a kit deck or an ETF deck, or like these sort of like hyper simple uh, introduction decks. But it's very obvious that Netrunner cards aren't really made for beginners. They're made for experienced players. And this isn't to say Gateway has no cards for experienced players. I think by now you'll have seen a lot of them that should be pretty impressive to play with in standard. But the goal would be that every card a you see in this product is something that someone who with without the context of Netrunner experience could understand and play with pretty easily. Yeah, I think that that is uh, pretty true looking at the cards that have been scooped so far. If you go back way back to the big boy ones, which are the first ones that I know of, they were more focused on teaching you what the faction did than stripping the game down to an easy to understand beginner sort of element. It was more about teaching you the fundamentals of the metagame at that current point than it was being a beginner product. You're right. This product right here really represents something that is focused more on the beginner experience, more on getting to understand the mechanics, and then you'll get introduced to other things later I actually wanted to kind of take it to something else and have you explain what system update represents, because I do think that that is ideally the next thing that somebody is going to get into after System Gateway, right? Definitely. I mean, part of the nice thing about System Gateway was to give people a starting point. Everybody can just point to something in the community and be like, I want to buy something for Netrunner. What do I buy? And if you do ask that question on Reddit, it's like, well, do you, what do you want to play? Like, do you want to buy like some old FFG content? We're the only active team producing Netrunner content. We are official Netrunner because Netrunner isn't officially made by anybody else. It's sort of our responsibility to make sure that there's like a central thing that players can point to and just go, okay, yeah, you want to play Netrunner? Buy this. And at the very least, even if you don't like it, it's like a board game experience. You'll be able to play this like you just buy a $30 board game or a $50 board game at your local game store, and then that's it. 
Right. And lest we forget, that was how Netrunner started. You know, it, it got into the top whatever in BGG just as an intro set that was arguably not perfectly designed for new players. So I, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, um, I credit Lucas and the original FFG team with a lot of great successes in early Netrunner. But the core set as a learning product, it is incredible that anybody managed to play a game of Netrunner. System update to sort of answer dovetail then to answer your question mm -hmm. is kind of like a corset in a sense, like a classical corset, because it has complex cards in it. System update is loaded with very complex cards that are even for some experienced players can struggle with all the things that they could do sometimes. So, you know, it's definitely the intention that we want you to have the tools to understand some of this legacy Netrunner content before you get it. But we also want you to have something that you can buy right away that's like, this is going to have a lot of cool stuff in it that is going to sort of enhance the gateway experience and make it so you have some more deck building options with your friends. But also, in addition to that, it's the history of the game. All the content in System Update is representative of cards we've played with in past metas. I've played since right around the time Data and Destiny came out. I'm not old, old school, but I'm like kind of old school, I guess. And there are content and system update that I played with in standard at that time that were in tier one decks. And I think it's really cool when someone buys gateway and they decide they really like the game that they're going to be able to buy something that shows them where the games come from and the history of the game and what content the community's already loved and experienced and been familiar with for years and years at this point. I just have a quick comment. This is an aside that it doesn't relate to anything you just said, but I don't know how to feel about the fact that I am the oldest, saltiest veteran Netrunner player here, and I'm arguably one of the worst at the game on this call. There are only three people on this call. It's not hard to be one of the worst on this call. Someone has to be. Especially given that one person on this call has had a lot of success in Netrunner. Yeah, I have, for sure. Not anymore. It's actually really funny. I really do think that the new guard of Netrunner players, the pencils and the white shades and so on, they're quite excellent at the game. They're better than I ever was at Netrunner. I don't even think it's very close. And now that I'm quite out of practice, it's even more exaggerated. If I win a game versus either of them in testing, I'm just sort of like, wow, incredible. I am very humble in the sense that there was a period of time where I had a lot of tournament Netrunner success. But to put it in perspective, I feel like it's kind of like chess from 200 years ago versus chess now. The people who are really good at chess now would slaughter, ruthlessly slaughter the people who played chess 200 years ago. And it's exactly the same as it is a Netrunner now. And it's only been like five years since I won nationals or whatever. System update then kind of represents a secondary product that somebody can buy after Gateway. So they try Gateway as a board game experience. They decide that they like Netrunner. They get into it and they really want to make it a lifestyle game. The next thing that the community can do then is just kind of point them towards system update and be like, okay, mm -hmm. here's some staple cards. This is going to help you build decks with system gateway. And then after that, you can think about getting additional cards to flesh out your collection mm -hmm. and start to build competitive decks. Yeah, exactly. And you could buy like Ashes and when Bashes comes out, you could buy that set as well. We want to do like a startup format, which is essentially sort of gateway, the most recent update, and then the most recent full Nisei cycle. That way it's sort of like, this is a cohesive bundle of cards. It's like a decent entry point and stores could run beginner Netrunner tournaments that have those three components being legal. And it would make it both affordable and hopefully have enough cards in it to be a somewhat interesting format. Though you never really know because it's such a small card pool, even relative to the whole Netrunner card pool. And it's very hard for every set to have everything to make every meta super interesting. But if it's something that's like fun and lighthearted that people can enjoy and also run tournaments for at their stores, 
I think it, it would be a big success to have like a, a format like that. Sort of the idea of cash refresh, but with the base core product, more of a base core product that you actually want to play with. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of formats, though, pants, pants. Mm -hmm. We have a lead designer on the podcast. We can't be messing with the format of the podcast. We always have an intro statement. I don't know what you're talking about. We need to stick with what we know and what we're good at. We need to bring up some of our classic bread and butter segments. Bread and butter segments? I think I know exactly the one to go with. Akamatsu Memchip, our best named segment. Ah, not this one again. You know that's what I was, you know that's not what I was getting at. This is one of our classic segments, Josh. I know that you had a problem with the name Akamatsu Memchip, but we have a good reason for it today. We are thinking of cards we have fond memories of. See? Pour one out for a rotating card. Mm. I can start because I got a lot to pour out for Stimhack. It has provided me not only at least 27 credits of value every single game I've played for a long time, it has also provided me the largest amount of rage when I see deck lists that do better than I do that don't have three Stimhacks in them. We're losing both in-game and out-of-game fuel. Yeah, and winning a game on three brain damage also just feels really good. I don't know, that whole like, fuck my brain mentality, I'm just going to get in there and win. It feels delicious. I There's no other card that can provide something like that. Fun fact related to that, I am pretty sure that every single game that I've had at least five brain damage, I've won. Thank you, Stinhack. I've only had one game like that, and it was because I got brainstormed click one. <laughs> Impressive that you won through that. <laughs> yeah. It turns out when you spend all your money on brainstorm and your deck has brainstorm in it, what else does your deck do? <laughs> That's your one shot. That was a, a JNet game from forever ago. Very fond memory. If they have the neural in hand, they win. But clearly they didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I won like three turns later, just running R&D. I did something similar, but it also included Stimhack, where one of my metamates, Fictional, got me with a Cerebral Overrider out of, I don't know if I remember the ID. I think it was RP. And so he gets me on, it's either three or four brain damage. He's threatening a win in the remote. I know he has something in HQ. He has a uh, TFP. But the only way that I can get in is stim hacking. So I stim hacked, found the agenda, won the side game, good to go. So I win this game with a brain damage pending and my brain already fucked up on three or four brain damage. <laughs> Would have been much more slums if you lost the side game. Yeah, yeah. And then died to the brain damage would have yep. been excellent. Faust would be my pick. Very few cards in the history of Netrunner has been as polarizing, game warping, or completely irrelevant as Faust at various periods <laughs> in the game's history. One thing I really look for in a quality card design is dissenting opinion. And that may seem sort of counterintuitive why a game designer wants wildly dissenting opinions about something. Like, of course, people... I think that they judge cards, they tend to want cards that are sort of universally loved and cards that are disliked are sort of seen as failures. But I think Faust to me symbolizes that sort of community polarization mm. behind love and hatred of a card so clearly and so well. I just, I love the design. It changes everything about a game of Netrunner all in one card. And not only that, the art is just absolutely fucking sick. It's a banger. Pactum, are you serious? Written in blood on a skull? This is the coolest shit ever. Number two, 
deal with the devil that's the coolest icebreaker yeah. ever like how it's so fucking metal i love it faust to me just like oozes everything i love about good card design and everything i love about good top-down theme function flavor all boiled together into one beautiful stew and it's just the best i love faust it's probably my favorite runner card in the whole game absolutely packed him barely touched him it says a lot about the card that you used to have to pay five influence to use it outside of Anarch, and it was mm -hmm. totally worth it. I won nationals with that card, paying the full five influence for it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's also surprising how when it doesn't have an engine behind it, especially that recursion engine, no levy, it's surprising how mediocre the card is. Without all the fuel, it really does feel like that Faustian bargain where you're just getting rid of these cards that would otherwise give you value and you have no way to get them back and no way to recycle them into your deck. Take a drink or pour one out for that one as well. So I do have mine now. It's got to be my boy, Easy Mark. Oh, shit. What are we going to do with the Slums Cast logo? Oh, no. You're right. Cut the feed. This is terrible news. Oh, man. I mean, I can't remember the last time I intentionally played Easy Mark in a deck, even in draft, but it's such a cute little card to teach people why Dirty Laundry is better. It turns out if you play Easy Mark, you are the Mark. Green beans are already questionable to begin with, and blue beans are just disgusting. You know, I think it was a nice thing to spend some time and pour one out for our homies, the cards that we're going to miss sometimes when it comes to showing what a card means and what a card means to you. There's no real substitute for excessive praise and flowery language. Flowery? Oh, no. That was a sick pun, Josh. Flowery? Ugh. Like, flower? Wow. I got to pour one out for you. That's the best pun that you've had so far on the podcast, I think. It's time for Baking Up Thinkless. The topic this week, as we go into the bakery, baking is like being the lead designer of Netrunner in the sense that I do not do either one and I'm not good at either one. Thankfully, we have someone here who has a much better idea of how to do at least one of those things. I don't know, maybe both. I do uh, quite a bit of baking. There we go, both of them. Unfortunately, we're mostly just going to be talking about the design part of it, not the baking part. I didn't actually write any questions about baking. Let's start off with what exactly does a lead designer do? When people ask me this question and, you know, when you're out and about, it's like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I'm a game designer. You get a lot of different answers. The answer I tell people now, after having done it for the last seven years, professionally and for Nisei, only for like a year with Nisei, a lead designer, really a good designer, period. Your job primarily is to ensure that every single person you work with sees the same game. And that is very difficult. You do that through design, like designing the game. But if your engineer has a different game in mind mm -hmm. than you do when they implement your design, or your artist is imagining a different game than you're imagining, or your artist and your engineer can't communicate on technical implementation of something because they're unable to see the same vision in their head, you have failed as a designer. So what I do is I take everybody who works on Netrunner, development, creative, basically anybody, and even people in GLC and the beginner discord or anybody who talks to me. And I try to talk about Netrunner in a way so that everybody is thinking about the same game. And that is expressed through card design, but also through just how we are all 
playing and understanding and being a community and you know doing all these things like around Netrunner. So it's very philosophical. It's not like, you know, what does lead designer do? But I usually lead with that because I think it's maybe the most important thing that a lead designer does, fostering that communication between everybody who works on Netrunner so that we're all imagining, we're all working towards the same end goal. And that has to come from design. It can't really come from anybody, anywhere else mm -hmm. because we're originating the gameplay and it is a game. That's the sort of flowery version of it. But the reality <laughs> is, uh, is I grind through a lot of different ideas and mechanics. I run meetings with other designers. We share cards, we do rounds of feedback. I'm a very product focused designer, which means mm -hmm. I always think about how does every single card feel like it belongs in this set. There's a lot of really great cards that I design and people in Nisei design, and they kind of just go in the bin because they're not a good fit for what we're working on right now. And for me, the big focus of what I do at Nisei is making sure that when Bashes comes out and we start talking about Bashes, every single card in Bashes feels like it completely belongs there. It lives in an ecosystem of really cool effects and ideas and designs creatively makes sense thematically, like every single part of that card belongs in that set. So in five years, when you look at a card and someone's like, oh yeah, that was in batches, you'll know right away. And then a lot of what the other designers are doing, and I'm helping too, although that sort of component of organization is a lot of design work. So I tend to leave the individual card design work to the other designers at Nisei more than just myself. It sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong or wrong me if I'm correct, no, that doesn't work. It sounds to me like you're a little bit in the Rosewater School of Design. Am I correct in saying that? Because what he's talked about is having a vision for the game in five and 10 years and coming up with these overall arcs and plans. And what I'm interested in is you say each individual card fitting together as a set, oh, that's bashes. Is the same true of making sure that each of the sets go together and this is Netrunner? I don't really pray at the Church of Mark Rosewater per se. I think a lot of game designers really do. I think Mark Rosewater is an incredibly talented Magic the Gathering designer, and his advice applies very well to designing Magic the Gathering content. But we are not Magic the Gathering. Our game is nothing like Magic. I mean, I say this as somebody who played the game for 15 years. I know very acutely that Netrunner is nothing like Magic. When it comes to sort of like building out that long-term vision and that sort of holistic vision for Netrunner, it starts with everything we make feeling internally cohesive. We do want to do some things where in bashes, we're going to plant some seeds for some future ideas in some other sets. And there might be some cards in there where you're like, this is neat, but it doesn't really feel like it, it has everything it needs. And then we'll have room to come back and revisit those concepts. So we are doing that future planning. And right now in design, we're working on three separate Netrunner products. So we have bashes, which is in playtest right now. I think it's in version like seven of playtest at the time of this recording. So it's been playtested for quite some time now. So soon it'll be ready to start getting all arted up. Who knows when it'll come out? Obviously not for a while, but we're getting ready to start that process. Then we'll have Bell Tower, which is also a full cycle, similar to Bashes. And we're working on another project called Bijou, which is another sort of smaller interstitial product. It'd be something that releases between cycles. And it'd be kind of like Gateway, where it feels like this more smaller, self-contained thing. So those are the things we're working on, and we're working on them all the time. So we are working quite far out. And we're trying to make sure that the vision of Netrunner we're building is consistent across all those things. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about being a game designer? <laughs> There's a lot of them. I think the biggest one is people think you're a director. Good game designers are not directors. Games are among the most multi-talented operatic productions you could possibly imagine creating. Say like a musician records a song. 
that's a musician with a talent and a specific subset of abilities, right? Mm -hmm. Now think of an opera. You have stage managers, stage directors, the pit, the actors themselves, the singers, the backup, the director, the screenwriter. You have the people who do the captions for the audience, if it's like mm -hmm. an Italian or something. So you have this very multi-skill workforce. People are experts in very niche elements of what makes the opera happen. That is how game making works. If you are going to come into game making as a director, as a game designer, you're going to be very sadly mistaken to think that you have any sort of control over other people's individual talents and expertise because you don't. I'm not an artist. <laughs> I'm not a programmer. I'm not a producer. You know, I'm not a marketer. I'm not any of those things. I'm a game designer. And to come into that experience thinking that my ability to design games supersedes other people's individual talents is very toxic to the ability to create a well-oiled team and a game that comes out feeling like a proper game that you want to play. So for me, when people's like, oh, so you're like the director. No, not really. I'm originating the ideas that we're going to work on. A lot of what I do at Nisei is like, what's some new mechanical space for Netrunner? And if the creative team's uninterested in that, or the development team feels like it's going to be too much work to play test, I'm not the director. They're experts in those areas. I have to respect their opinion and I have to iterate on my own ability to design. That's the biggest thing I'd say. Being a designer is about bringing your expertise, but not telling other people what to do. So you're saying that design can change based on things like art or things like feedback from, say, a rules team going, this is way too complicated to mm -hmm. implement, or we can't do this based on our current role structure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Happens all the time. Most of the things we design have some problem like that. The standard of doing good design is very high. I think a lot of people think like, oh, you designed some cards and there they are. You can design a really cool card and 10 boxes have to get checked for that to even make it into version one of the file. It has to have sort of like acceptable length. It can't be overly complex. It has to be balanceable. It has to have enough knobs and levers that we feel like we're going to be able to adjust it because your first draft, guess what? It's going to be broken probably, or it's going to be unplayable or something. So you're going to have to work on that. So it needs to have enough diversity of numbers or effects that we feel like we can balance it. It has to fit the thematic point of the set. The art team might be like, oh, this is like a big pivot for this character. Like this is supposed to be their console. It can't really do this because they're supposed to be about this other thing. And this is very much not what they're about. So all these different teams are influencing the design process. And again, this is why I said my job is to create the shared vision of Netrunner because every single one of those teams has to believe in that individual design. And then I have to take all those little individual designs that people believe in and put them in one house. Sounds extremely complex. And then sometimes the reality is, is you spend two weeks working on a mechanic, you talk to all these different people, and we've had multiple times where I did two weeks of work on something. I had another designer work on me with it. We came up with a new mechanic. We had it all in a doc. We had example designs and we threw it out. You just can never take that personally. If you forced it through, the game would be worse for it. The team would be worse for it. And not only cause resentment, but it would just be an objectively worse game. And the reality is, as a designer, you should have a high bar for what you put out into the world. It cannot be just like, this is my vision as an auteur, and therefore you're all wrong. You're the one who's fucking wrong. Like, these people are smart and talented and care about this. Like, you have to listen to them. You can't be egotistical about it. This might surprise the Slums audience a little bit, but one of the hobbies outside of doing this podcast is I am a writer. And I hear a very similar thing when you talk with writing where there's a huge iceberg problem. People only mm -hmm. see the finished product. They see a very small profile 
everything is under the water. 90% mm-hmm. of the work that went into it is under the water and will never see the light of day because ultimately what you want people to see is the finished product that's very shiny and clean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is a gripe as a designer probably. So excuse me for being whiny for 30 seconds. People don't view design as a hard skill. Everybody fancies themselves a designer all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that you're not a designer. I believe you are. You know, anybody who wants to be can be. I'm not a gatekeeper about it at all. But it's important to realize that design is a hard skill. It is cultivated over years of designing games. It is cultivated over decades for some designers, their whole lives. It is not a trivial thing to design a game and to make it feel that sharp, cohesive, aesthetic, crunchy game that you want it to be. It takes forever. And the difference between the really the difference between experienced designers and unexperienced designers is they know where the dead ends are because they've been down all of them. And it's true with writing too. You know what kinds of things are going to work in your stories. You've written a lot (laughs) and you've made mistakes. And it's the same with being a game designer. And some of the mistakes are still, you know, you make them again and again because it seems like it's going to be a good idea every time. Mm -hmm. You brushed on this briefly earlier. Mark Rosewater is a good designer for Magic, but Magic and Netrunner are very different. And you've been a designer, you've been the lead designer on games other than Netrunner as well. One thing I'm curious about, how does being a lead designer for Netrunner compare to some of those other games? Yeah, it's way more fun. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, and that's mostly because I believe in Nisei as an organization. I believe in worker ownership. I believe in collective ownership. I believe in removing worker alienation from human lives to the best extent that we can. And part of that is a lot of the decisions I made as lead designer on other games was decisions that CEOs wanted me to make more than I wanted to make them. And any designer who's worked with the money people, as I call them, will tell you the same thing. There are no games that have been made that have been made better because somebody who did not work on that game needed to make money from them. They're all worse because of it. And Nisei is now making a game wherein none of us need to make money off of it. The purpose of making it is the collective joy of bringing Netrunner to the Netrunner community. There is no other purpose. We all individually benefit from that. We have artists in Nisei who were complete beginners two or three years ago and are now producing excellent artwork for cards coming out in Gateway. That has all been self-taught and communally taught from within Nisei. We have designers who, when I joined, I would consider to be sort of amateurish and rookie, who I now think would be worthy successors to me, if and when I would leave Nisei in the future, which not planning to do anytime soon. It'll happen one day, I'm sure. That's what Nisei is about. It's about that self-growth and that support and that lack of alienation from what it is we're doing. We feel very connected to it and we feel strongly about it. I love that. Again, I think this is something that you brought up a little bit earlier. And to be clear, I'm not looking for things that we can't scoop on this podcast. You know, I don't want to have a two minute section that we have to bleep out. Though, you know, we will if we have to. Did you come into the lead designer role at Nisei with specific goals for where you wanted to take Netrunner? I try not to do that when I join teams because I think it's kind of counterproductive. Everyone at Nisei had their own ideas about what they'd like to see the game become. Everybody at Nisei is a Netrunner player. I watched what Netrunner players say about the game. I've been in Stim Slack for five years. I'm in the GLC Discord now. I see a lot of people talk about Netrunner and what they want it to be. I have no incentive to fight that. It just doesn't make any sense. The question, of course, and this is a, a saying that you'll hear designers say, players are very good at providing problems and they're quite poor at understanding what good solutions look like. And that's not a criticism of game players. They're just not game designers. They're viewing the game as a player. So as a designer, 
I have to see what people say, and then I have to read through the lines and figure out what it is that they want to ha actually have happen. And some of that is quite polarizing. So for example, among my other hundreds of polarizing game design opinions, I'll posit another. Caprice Nise is a perfectly designed Netrunner card. And part of why it's a perfectly designed Netrunner card is whether or not you know it, it creates the exact kind of gameplay you want out of a Netrunner game. It turns sure things into gambles. <laughs> it takes games that would be trivially over and makes them nail biters. It equalizes games among highly skilled players and inferior players. It does everything you want a good card to do as a role player in a game. Now, if you said before Caprice came out, what do you think Netrunner needs to make the games feel closer and more competitive? Nobody would have designed Caprice Nisei except for a game designer. And that's just how it works. The game designer's job is to find what people are saying and find the manifestation of it that represents what they want, that shared vision of the game. That's fucking sick. I wasn't playing before Caprice Nisei came out. Caprice Nisei was a known quantity when I started playing the game. I it sounds like based on the timelines, I started playing maybe six months, a year after you. So Caprice was very much a known quantity at that point. In my opinion, HQ accesses are inherently more interesting than R&D accesses. And it kind of turns the remote into that. Exactly. Or it can even turn an account set into that. It makes the remote into expected value. So expected value is a concept in, it's in poker and lots of other games. And in a range of outcomes, how much do you expect to profit every time you engage in the outcome? or engage in the process, so you get a random outcome. So in R&D, your expected value in accessing an agenda is about one in five. So you score a fifth of an agenda every time you access R&D from an EV perspective. That's how you think about that from making like a mathematical judgment. And Caprice turns the remote, if you have a GFI in the remote, you're gonna score a third of a GFI every time you run that remote. That's like a weird way to understand it because there's only one outcome. You either steal it or you mm -hmm. don't. But in reality, what's happening is you're stealing it a third of a GFI every time you run it. I love the fact that Caprice does introduce randomness, but in a way that still allows skill and still allows good gameplay decisions. You know, it isn't just a pure third. If you're confident in your ability to win a side game against someone, you can make a bigger variance play because you're betting that it really isn't two thirds. It's 100% that you keep it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting aspect of that card, because if you go back on older streams and you look at those, you'll see the commentators commentating on pro players. Well, not pro players. Um, what's a better way to put that? Skilled the top players. players, the skilled players making a run against the remote that has a Caprice on it. Defeating Caprice back in the day, a lot of people would default to running centrals. And it's not a bad strategy, but looking at what you were talking about, if it's earlier in the game, your EV on scoring an agenda on R&D is pretty low. And so running remote is something that a skilled player does because they recognize, oh, even if I don't get in, my chance of actually scoring this thing that I know is an agenda is much, much higher than me just running a central right now and attempting to score an agenda that way. So if I'm trying to score an agenda at this point, I should just run the thing that they advanced in the remote, yeah. even though there's a Caprice there. The other interesting aspect, I think, is that it does also at the same time take some skill out of it because while you can read the board state, right, and you can say them bidding two credits here is bad or one is good or their their best bet is zero or something like that. There's also just times that your opponent or you will do something absolutely unexpected, even though it's the least value for you. And you'll either win or lose based on that. 
I love that card. And I'm actually glad that we have already scooped in Community Week, Aniotic Void, which is the card that allows you to trash cards out of HQ and pay two credits to end the run. I think that Border Control and that card are cards that do a similar thing to Caprice, but are a little bit more sure than Caprice. And one of the things that I really liked about Caprice was being unsure on either side. And that's why that card's so exciting. Personally, somewhat selfishly, I love the fact that this new upgrade is in the game. I'm going to play it in basically every deck, but I do miss the fact that I could sometimes just pay zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's sick, right? Like yeah. the architect. Just get them good. One last question on this topic, and this is sort of two, so it's kind of two last questions. What did or what do you see as the biggest challenges unique to designing Netrunner? So Netrunner is a very free-form game. So a lot of what I view as the biggest challenge of designing Netrunner is funneling players into lines of play that are coherent within the cards they're playing. So part of what that is, is every game, and this is related to Gateway as well, but I think it's something that should be contiguous across all Netrunner releases. When you teach someone to play Netrunner, you sit them down, you're like, okay, this is what a program is, what a breaker is, like these are the things you can do in your turn. And then they draw their hand and you go, okay, go ahead. And they're like, okay, so what can I do? That's (laughs) always the first question they ask. Okay, so what do I do? Because they know what all the cards do, but what do I do with my cards? Like, yeah. I don't understand. It's very difficult to parse it. And it's because Netrunner is a sandbox game. It's an action economy game. A big part of what I'm trying to do in design is making it so that the cards you play with at least suggest to you what a good strategy looks like, more than cards historically have done. In Gateway, there is a little bit of that. It's not as though every single thing in the game has to do that. You know, that's like not the goal. The goal is just to make the game a little bit easier to find like what something approximates an okay play, especially for somebody who's a more casual player. So that's a really big challenge, the sandbox element of the game. The other thing is that Netrunner is a toy box, the content game. So I'll give a quick metaphor. So you're going to design a game. You could design your game like Disneyland. And that means that it's a perfectly curated manicured experience. Every single thing you do is completely set up for it to be exactly the way you see it. You have every experience they meant you to have. And you get all the satisfaction out of it. And everybody has the exact same experience at Disneyland every time, perfectly. Hearthstone is a game that's a lot like that. Netrunner is not like that at all. Netrunner is very jagged. It has a lot of rough edges. Games against the same decks are wildly divergent in terms of their overall course and play patterns. Uh, And that is what I call a toy box game. So Mm -hmm. a toy box game is a game where the designer gives you a box and it's full of a bunch of toys and they all go together. And you can play with them however you want. No one's saying, you know, you have to ride this ride first and then this is where you go in Disneyland. It's nothing like that. It's just, mm-hmm. here's the box of stuff. Have fun. Play whatever game you want to play with these toys that I've given you. That makes the game inherently much more difficult to design. The kind of game that runner is. When you try to force people to play something a certain way, when you try to put some of that Disneyland energy into Netrunner, it's met with revulsion because players expect that creativity and that agency and that desire to express themselves. You can't really express yourself in Hearthstone. You can have a deck that you play and it's your deck, but you're not really expressing yourself. You're meant by the designers to play that deck in some sense. You were meant to ride that ride in Disneyland. You're meant to have that moment with Mickey Mouse. There is no part of you that can have creative agency over that experience. It's an an experience that is happening to you. Netrunner is a game where you impose the experience onto the game. You impose the way you want to play the game. And as a result, the kinds of content that you need to make 
in that game are mostly where there is a lot of small nuanced interactions across dozens of pieces of content. It's not like I play a card that costs one and then card that costs two, and then this com A combos with B, and that's what this deck does. Netrunner doesn't work that way. It resists that. It's much more about finding those nuanced interactions, Stimhack SMC, Data Sucker Parasite, small toolboxy interactions that are cohesive across the entire card pool. That is what I view as the main challenge of designing Netrunner. By the way, I'm not criticizing the Disneyland approach. I think there are great games that use that approach. I happen to love Hearthstone. I think it's a very fun game, but it's not the Netrunner. There's unique challenges in each approach, but I would say the toy box approach to game design and content design requires quite a lot more attention to detail in terms of just ensuring it doesn't break itself, like it doesn't like collapse in on itself. It's a big challenge in that particular regard, is making things feel cohesive enough that they belong together, but also distinct enough or individual enough, I should say, that they don't feel like they're a part of a Disneyland experience. That actually kind of makes me hopeful for the future. We've seen so. what... <laughs> Well, we've seen what happens to Netrunner when there's design that's not cognizant of that fact. We've had some wild, wild decks that have made the game go off the rails. I mean, we <laughs> you could argue Dumble was like that. I would argue that it's a little bit closer to the fundamental idea of what I, at least I think Netrunner should be. But DLR, you cannot argue, was not an off-the-rails wild deck that just did something that nobody expected a deck to be able to do in Netrunner. The same is true of Diaper. The same is true of uh, CI7, the Woo. Brain Rewire decks. Woo seems like the closest that we currently have in yeah. the card pool to like the Disneyland experience where you can just guarantee your three Rizekis in your first turn or something like that. Oh, that's where you're going with that. I thought you were going with the as... off-the-rail stuff, but Wu did the oh. off-the-rail stuff too. I like to call it cold wounds. Right, with the origamis and stuff. That, that, that cool. But cold, that cold cool. ones yeah. also kind of did something off the rails as well. Well, well yeah, that's like what I mean about personal expression. Some of the more Disneyland-ish cards, MCA austerity policy fits a little bit in that bucket too. It warps the game to be about MCA austerity policy. But even there, the resilience of kind of Netrunner being this toy box game, you can ignore it. You can completely ignore that card and still win the game. Mm -hmm. Again, I think some of those is the correct move. Having those be the top strategy, again, like DLR, is not the right move. But that's an opinion. I know. I understand. Anyway, we can all agree that Shaper sucks. I, I mean, never mind. Uh, My favorite <laughs> faction in the whole game, Corp and Runner, Shaper. I'm hurt. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Although uh, Sumpscast is explicitly anti-shaper. That said, honestly, the new shaper ID is fucking sick. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> mm -hmm. Some of these shaper cards we're seeing. Uh, so we may have to revise that policy in the future. We've been in the bakery for a while now. We've been baking up a lot of think loves. The only problem that I really have with this segment is that I get really hungry when we're in the bakery this long. You know, I could kill for a good loaf of holla right now. Mm. Holla? That's a sick fucking pun, Pants. What? Jalapeno. That's right. It's time for... Ooh, that's spicy. I'm not used to being the one in these shoes. I'm so confused right now. What, what just happened? You want to know, dear listeners, what the spiciest development of 2021 is? The spiciest development of all time on the Slums cast? It's that the Slums cast has... Oops. For so long, we have been out in the arid Scoops desert 
and we have found the Scoops Oasis. Yes, yes, indeed we have, and we are about to drink deeply from that oasis. We are about to slake that Scoops thirst. And since all of them are Jinteki, we actually wanted to pause before we discuss the Scoops to talk about Jinteki. What is Jinteki as a faction? What does it do, and how does it do it? I don't know. <laughs> Neither do I. That's why I asked. Yeah. <laughs> so in all seriousness, this is, this is a kind of ingo- an ongoing internal joke at Nisei that Jinteki is the, like, what does Jinteki even do is kind of common joke internally. Yeah, so Jinteki's the faction covers a few major themes. Misinformation is a big thematic idea for them. Biomechanical life is like a big thing and sort of organisms morphing into other organisms. They do a lot of that stuff thematically. And then in terms of what their sort of bread and butter mechanical ideas are, they do a lot of psi because they have psychic clones that can kind of read your mind. That's something they've been doing for a long time. Net damage and killing you with net damage because you try to jack into the net and then they blow your brain up. They're really good about that. And also just sort of like all kinds of like trickery and bluffing. If you like trickery Mm -hmm. and bluffing, you like Jinteki. One of the reasons I ask this is like, I think this is something I've struggled with about Jinteki is when I think about the decks in Jinteki that have been successful in the past, you kind of have this one side that's do a bunch of stuff, generate, really not even generate a credit lead, just make it so that the runner can't disrupt me enough. And then boom, 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 res three things, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other side that's kind of just... I make a credit a turn off of Polana. I do a bunch of fair things. And then I do one really unfair thing, which is Nisei Mark II, and you lose. Mm -hmm. There's some element of they're trying to do something that's unfair, but in vastly different ways, (laughs) depending on the exact strategy. I do think that it might have a bit of an identity crisis as a faction, because one of the things that I find true, at least, is that the decks that leverage pressure on all sorts of different resources. So there was like this value PE deck way, way back in the early game that somebody named Nord Runner worked on. The whole idea was you pressure money, you pressure cards, you pressure clicks. And I think that the faction can feel kind of all over the place because it feels like you're doing three different things, but they're all kind of going towards that one goal of, I'm going to catch you out on something because you can't keep up on all three of these all at once. And I think that that's also why that one unfair thing, Nisei Mark II, also works as a win con because I'm pressuring you on all three of these things. I'm catching you out. You keep up, but then I go, ah, no, you didn't. I don't know how to answer these questions either to be honest, as far as that goes, but that does seem to me to be part of why Jinteki feels identity list is because it does do so many things all at once. Oh, we're, we're trying to hone on them, hone in on some ideas for them a little bit, and we do have some new major mechanical ideas we'd like to introduce to the faction. You're going to mm-hmm. see some of that in Gateway. They're like the Archives Corp. Mm. They're the corp that cares the most about the archives and utilizing the archives as a resource. Not necessarily for recursion, which is sort of the most natural space to go with that. HB kind of is more of a faction that does that, deal with archive memories and whatnot. But we're trying to use Jinteki to be able to use face down cards and archives as a resource going forward. 
face downs and agenda control are something that we have seen with the faction before. It actually seems like more of a natural fit than NBN, to be honest. Although NBN having the filtering cards feels perfect for them. Ooh, do you want to check this hidden information? Does feel very Jinteki to me. Yeah, I'm into that. I think that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about the scoops themselves. Let's actually read the cards. Let's go ahead and start off with Longevity Serum is an agenda. It's a 3-2, which is already pretty exciting. It is a limit one per deck, and it says, when you score this agenda, you may trash any number of cards in HQ, shuffle up to three cards in archives into R&D. This card seems sick. Yeah, I love this card. It goes into what we were just talking about, which is the faction that utilizes the face downs and, and has that agenda control. I think this agenda is just awesome because you can get this out of hand score it it's a three two you can bluff it on the table and if you're flooded you just trash agendas and shuffle them back in Mm -hmm. or you don't have to trash because look it's a separate clause and you just get back three cards for value there's nothing about this agenda that i don't like i love that it's not blank i do think that it's great that it's limit one because it does seem very powerful, but it also doesn't seem game warping. It doesn't seem like it's one of those agendas where you score it and the game is basically over. And so I like it in that aspect where limit one per deck seems more to limit the recursion aspect and the absolute value that you can get out of this agenda rather than to make it, this is what balances the power. And if you happen to draw this on a gamble, you win the game. The natural comparison being Philotic. Personally, I would slot Philotic in eight agenda Jintekis largely because it was nice to have a thing that you could never advance and mm-hmm. not just telegraph, this is an agenda, come get it. There were occasionally corner cases where Philotic would do more than just a blank three twos worth of value. You might snipe a breaker in hand or in very, very weird cases, it might kill. Every single time you score this, regardless of what type of deck you are, you're getting value. And if you're not, it's because you're trying to rush so hard Honestly, a blank 3-2 is all you needed at that point. I have a question before we move on to the next card then. Did you have involvement in crafting this specific card or any cards that follow a theme like this? Not the limit one protect 3-2s. That wasn't my call. But I would say if you like 3-2 agendas and 2-1 agendas and don't like 5-3 agendas very much, you're probably going to like the direction the game is going in overall from this point. 3-2s are a sort of contentious game design aspect, I would say. Like people argue about the power level of 3-2s quite a lot. Nisei, the design team at this point, is very much of the opinion that corp deck building starts at the agenda suite, and we need everybody to feel like they have powerful agendas they can include in their deck. They're excited to play those agendas, and those agendas actively win them the game. Cards like Bologna, Obacata Protocol, are sort of like that but they have this effect of making games sort of like slower and less dynamic and overly centralizing around their existence. If you look back in time at decks that were very 3-2 centric, Jam EHB, NEH Fast, Advance, et cetera, those archetypes were very interesting because the 3-2 agendas added an extra level of dynamism to every game you play because there's more never advancing, there's more fast advancing, the corp has more pressure. You have to get your game plan together much quickly as the runner. Prison decks on the runner side are quite poor when people are playing 3-2s because you sort of get rushed out. 3-2s in general, I think, are a cornerstone of early Netrunner that we sort of have moved away from in the last few years. But this is sort of a reintroduction to having more 3-2s in the game, and I would expect to see even more 3-2s in the future as well. I'm interested in seeing if a mix of defensive 5-3s, because they're now really, really worth playing, 
some of them even over GFI, which is considered one of the best five threes, depending on your deck. Depending on your definition of five three as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I'm interested in seeing what the mix of powerful three twos making a minor reappearance in System Gateway here, along with those defensive agendas, because I find the defensive five threes to be really interesting cards. I do think that some of them are maybe overtuned. In some ways, play patterns that they introduce are not the most fun I've ever had playing Netrunner. Mm -hmm. But I think having a slot of higher value defensive agendas and quicker to score or never advanceable agendas like these three twos might be really interesting. Yeah, I'm curious to see if that pans out as well. Do we want to describe the art pants or are we just going to leave that to the show notes? Yeah, obviously anyone listening right now, go ahead and open that link if you aren't already in there to take a look at the art because this art is awesome. Okay, so the next one we have going on here is, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Urtica Cipher. And this is an asset ambush. Res zero, trash two, influence two. This asset can be advanced. When the runner accesses this asset while it is installed due to net damage and one additional net damage for each hosted agenda counter. Advancement counter, not agenda counter. Typically hard to get agenda counters on uh, installed assets, but... I made a slums move and I got it wrong. It's Junebug, right? It's like simultaneously better and worse than Junebug, right? (laughs) It's much better in the cases where you don't throw more than two advancements into it, which is, at least the way that I play the game, every realistic case. It's better if you just want to kind of have it as a value install in the remote that you're trying to beta run, or if it's something that they just hit on your board. Or as an IA play, it's exactly the same value as Junebug. Actually, better, right? Because you don't have to pay any money. Junebug did cost money. It's free to trigger. That's great. Kind of like a mini snare that you can also IAA with, or IA with. Um, the case where it's worse is if you're Jemison Wombo combo that's just trying to throw 80 advancements onto a single card and flatline with it. It's harder to do that with Urtica Cypher. And honestly, I think that's fine. I think that the value that you get when this is at zero or one advancement counters vastly outweighs theoretical value that you get for having it at six. I think that the only thing that this thing doesn't have over even like snare is that it doesn't trigger unless it's installed. Snares, you can just leave them in your hand, not Ice HQ and say, hey, come on in. The runs are free. Go got them when they hit a snare. But this still has that snare play of you can just put it unadvanced in a remote. And if they come get it, they're getting rid of two cards. And it's for free, not for overall. I think that this is a great Junebug replacement that feels noticeably different. I think this is a good fitting successor to Junebug and is also itself a pretty distinct card. This is one that I do want to talk about the art on for a little bit, just because this of the four art pieces that we have for ours is the one that I think I like the most. This is incredible art. The color of it, the fact that it looks very Jinteki, there's so much visual storytelling happening here. Even just the fact that this floating figure is so much larger than the people, this is such cool art. Yeah, I think it's really cool too. Like it uses a lot of reddish browns in it. That's kind of a theme that carried over from Obakata. The net dealing asset or agenda, it looks threatening. It's going to hurt you. It's just a bunch of scientists and a figure that's bigger than them. Even though nobody in this scene looks to be doing anything threatening, the card and the art itself looks threatening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving on. Karuna is an ice. It is a sentry. AP, reses for four, three strength, two influence. 
one sub that does two net damage and then says the runner may jack out, and then a second sub that says two net damage. This is an interesting card. I really like this idea of you the combination of a face check penalty and attacks in the same ice. It doesn't completely destroy the runner's life that they hit this thing while it was installed, but it did hurt. But then if they want to get through, they have to pay for two subs. I guess the one issue is at the moment, paying for these two subs only costs three. In a world without MK Ultra, this might actually be kind of annoying to get through. I think it costs Begalter two, right? I mean, even so, for a res four, that's not a terrible ratio. Centuries have been a little bit higher on their res costs for what they do. Two huge exceptions, Surveyor and Anansi. This ice does point towards something that you maybe talked about happening in the future with the cards spoiled in some of the ice that we have seen already. Breakers in ice might see a ratcheting down on their levers and their numbers. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Big initiative in design is two components. So I'll say the first component, but I think it's very important that we think about it holistically because the first one does sound a bit scary on its own, which is making ice worse holistically across the board. What I mean when I say making ice worse is making it not all universal reses. Gold Farmer, Engram Flush, there's a bunch of other cards in this category, really. Slot Machine. They're ice that, regardless of what the game state is, they're mandatory and automatic reses in all cases. You never don't res them. There's no decision to be made. They basically always go on R&D HQ or your scoring server. Their value they generate on their first res is so great. There's no decision-making process with these cards. They don't exist to do anything other than to make the game economically worse for the runner. Even some of the larger ice has this issue. Anansi is one of the biggest ones, wildly too expensive to break for what it does. It also is oddly annoying for some small subset of cards where you still, you would think it counters Anansi, but then you take net damage anyway. Compare Anansi to Tollbooth. Tollbooth is where we want to be, okay? Uh, Anansi is not where we want to be. With three-cost ice, the best three-cost ice, I think, should be something like Eli 1.0, but most of them shouldn't even be that good. They should maybe be a little worse. Eli is like pretty above curve in that universe. You don't always want to res them. Different tools do better and worse against them at different phases of the game. Architect was one of the best ices in the game for a very long time, and Mimic breaks it for two, but it was still universally played in decks that needed effects like that. So we just want to get retune the ice structure away from value and away from universal applications of ice and start caring more about, you know, for example, you used to play one Tollbooth in Shinteki Glacier and that was like a remote ice and you splashed it because you needed Tollbooth for your remote versus most decks. And we want to get kind of back to that where people are using ice as like in their toolkit. There's a lot of different applications of ice. They're not all universally resed. They all are put into your deck with specific ideas in mind for what servers they go on. And just getting that granularity with ice back, wherein it's not just like a numbers smash. This ice sort of mirrors that concept. Some of these really big ice are actually just automatically game losing if you don't know they exist and you run them. Like Fairchild 3, I've just like been playing with newer players and they ran click two against HB without a code gate breaker. And I'm like, just not going to res this because the game's over if I res it. Like the game is literally, it ends for six credits. And I just really don't want ice to ever do that. You should get punished for face checking an ice you didn't have a breaker for, but the punishment shouldn't be losing the game. We're just trying to go in that direction. And the second thing to think about is like, oh, if ice is so weak, how will I win the game? Well, I want win conditions to be better. I want your deck to be about your win conditions, about your 3-2 agendas, about your 2-1 agendas, about Sand Sand City Grid, about Caprice, like these sorts of cards that 
you include in your deck and the ice is the thing that helps you protect them, but you're not winning the game because you have strong ice. You're winning the game because you have a win condition and a strategy. Right now, for a lot of decks, your ice is kind of your win condition. You need the ice to be really taxing or you'll just lose because your win conditions are not strong enough. That's just like a reframing of how to think about it, right? Take the power that exists in ice currently and put it into like strong win condition type cards. Okay, so that being said, though, are you opposed to making certain ice win conditions? Because I think we'll all agree that border control is a card that you could consider a win condition in certain decks. For sure. Right now, it's just sort of like the bar for playability with ice is just like how much money does it cost to break? Mm -hmm. Or how badly is it for you to face check it? Like how hard do you lose the game when you face check it? We just need to go retool our brains a bit, do a little time machine warp back to when ice was a little more reasonable. Think toll booth, still very good ice, like ice that people were happy to play at the time, just not quite as outlandish as some of the stuff that's in the game now. Think of toll booth, right? If toll booth is kind of where we want to be, that was an ice that you would res to win the game in Comrades CTM, for instance. You have it there because you need an ice that does that thing. But the reason it worked was because they had a game plan that went fast enough and was punishing if you got behind to the point where one res tollbooth might win the game. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But you didn't run 3x tollbooth in your deck no. either, and you didn't auto-res it. You Ooh, res it at the key not. time, which is what I think June is getting at. You didn't just stick it on the remote, auto-res this tollbooth, now you know it's here. Sometimes you let them get through it, and sometimes you even let them score an agenda, even though you have that toll booth there. It, um, some games you discard the toll booth. The other thing that I had to say about Karuna in particular, I could see in a world where the icebreakers are not efficient enough to break this for two and three, this becomes a pretty decent ice. And it becomes a very interesting ice when it costs four. I think it's time for us to move on to another of our bread and butter segments, one that usually lasts a long time with lots of discussion. It's time for Banner Nab. And this week, we are going to discuss Ban or Nab, Longevity Serum. Ban. Ban. Agreed. Moving on. Next segment. We actually have another interesting segment today, Josh. Another segment? Indeed. I know that your favorite segments on the show are the ones that are named after cards in Netrunner. Sure, sure. So I went ahead and took the liberty of naming this upcoming segment the best 4-2 in the game of Netrunner rebranding team. Oh, what the fuck? You mean we're going to change our brand? We're going to change our brand? I We're not going to be the okayest? Like, I, I don't know if I can abide by this. Oh, hold on there, Josh. Please, do you think I have it in me? to be anything other than okay. It's not about changing our brand. It's about making things an advertisement. That's a that, that's a callback to what the card does mechanically, see? Oh, okay. I'm, I, I may approve of this then. Okay, yeah. Basically what I have to tell our audience today is Slumscast has a merch store on Redbubble. What, why? Because, um, because I had a few hours free. Uh, no, honestly, that's a very legitimate question. Why would you want merch that connects you to Slumscast? And that is the reason that one of the t-shirts you can get on our merch store is a t-shirt that says, I do not listen to Slumscast. Actually, I could see that being pretty useful for a lot of people. I need one. Yeah. Honestly, my parents need one. You think they want any association with this podcast? 
Oh, absolutely not. Nah, nah. Oof. Bad business, that. So if you want to make sure that no one thinks you listen to Slumscast, the best way to make sure that they know is to go and buy a t-shirt that tells them you do not listen to Slumscast. Okay, so what are, what are we going to do with this deluge of, of profits that I'm predicting then? Where, where is this money going? All five of the dollars that we make over the next two months, I'm going to say. But in all seriousness, all of the profits that we have over the first two months are going to be donated to charity. And the charity? Uh, in classic slums fashion, we did not actually think about which charity we wanted to donate to before we recorded this segment. <laughs> so... Actually, we want our listeners to help us figure that out. Feel free to add us on Stimstock or Twitter. Honestly, I'm going to request, please add us on Twitter if you can. The main reason is Stimslack, we know it, we love it, we're there all the time. Honestly, we are there too much, we need help. But Stimslack also rotates like every N weeks where N is a number that's not super large, so... Twitter sticks around longer. Please add us on Twitter so that we don't literally lose the message telling us, hey, this is a great charity. You should donate the money there. But we want your help to figure out where this money should go. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. Links for where to contact us on Twitter will be in the show notes. And yeah, go ahead and let people know that you don't listen to Slumscast. There are also a few other things in there. I don't know. If you're surrounded by people who don't know what Slumscast is, and therefore won't judge you for having some affiliation with it. There's also one that has the logo on it, but honestly, much less useful than the other one. Absolutely. All right. Well, that has been the best 4-2 in the game of Netrunner rebranding team, our newest segment. The names just keep getting better, Josh. Eh. Eh. One last question to ask you before you leave, June. This is the closing argument. Very hypothetical situation. Let's say you have been appointed lead designer by Nisei. Crazy, I know. Without giving away something that we don't have the security clearance to scoop on this podcast, what do you think people should be most excited for about Netrunner after system update and system gateway come out? We're going to do new stuff. That's what you should be excited about. Better or for worse, most content that's existed for Netrunner that has ever come out has been riffs on mechanics present in the core set. There's been very little new design space tread, very little new mechanics. When you think about every other expandable content game, every content release has new mechanics, new concepts, new archetypes, doing things you haven't done yet before in the game. We are sort of in a loop with Netrunner now where most of the things you do are just things you've done and everything we do are sort of like comparable to decks of the past very directly. A big goal for the Nisei design team is to tread new ground, bring new archetypes to the game, new ways to play the game, it's still going to be Netrunner in its core essence. It's still going to be about making good runs and having multi-access or like fast advancing agendas or like all these sorts of things that have just been part of the game forever. We're not going to change any of that. Netrunner is like a perfect cake. We're going to add some new toppings, some new icing. Let's mix it up a little bit. Try some funky stuff that we haven't had yet. And if that scares you, it scares me a little bit too, because <laughs> I've played this game for a long ass time and I really like this game. And you can always know that even if I say something that sounds a little bit out there, I don't know about this ice thing, or I don't know about this comment you made or whatever. The design team is like seven people. The dev team is like seven people. The playtest team is massive and all this gets playtested. I'm saying like, hey, we really wanna go in this direction philosophically. It has to go through the process. Every team gets to weigh in. 
everybody gets to talk about it. It has to get playtested for like thousands of games. Be excited because I think doing new stuff in Netrunner is going to be the thing that keeps us playing it forever, our whole lives, hopefully. And it's also going to be the thing that gets people to come back to the game and be excited to see it again and be like, oh, it's not the same old game. There's some new stuff in here. It's going to be the thing that keeps people who get introduced to the game with System Gateway excited for each release that comes out. We're just willing to tread new ground and try new things and experiment with the game. If there's anything to be excited for, I'd say it's that. Sounds good to me. And with that, we have reached the end of our 10th episode. That is still crazy to me. If you liked what you heard on this 10th episode, go ahead and follow us. You can follow us in basically every major podcast outlet for some reason. They all have us. I don't know why either. But you can follow us there. You can look at the other nine episodes if you haven't listened to them. And I can't guarantee that any of them are as good as this, but they are there. If you didn't like what you heard, please follow us anyway. Please check out those other episodes also. And special thanks, obviously, we have to give special thanks to June for being on the podcast this week. June, do you have any shout outs you want to give while you're on here? Gosh, shout out to my job for laying me off. Y'all are jerks, but it's going to be for the best. I'm really excited about the direction I'm going to take my life. I'm going to have a lot more time for doing my own personal projects, which is just incredibly exciting. That happened like two days ago, which is wild to think about, but I have a really positive attitude about it. My partner is really supportive of me. We've been together 10 years. So shout outs to like my future in the sense of like, despite getting laid off, I'm going to try and turn it into a good thing. And then also shout outs to, there's a lot of things at Nisei that happen individually and you don't ever see any of it. There's a lot of people and they all do a lot of hard work. Shout out to all of them because despite the fact that I'm a sort of public figure and that I'm the lead designer, it's an incredible amount of work. There's no way I could do it on my own. There's no way I could do it with five people or 10 people. It really does take everybody at Nisei to make it happen. Really shout out to them and shout out for some reason that everybody still plays Netrunner. Shout out to that concept that we're all still playing Netrunner for some godforsaken reason. I love it. Me too. Yeah. You make agree. Netrunner yourself, but you can make it with a queer socialist commune. There you go. <laughs> That's what's up. Well, thank you so uh, much for being on. Yeah, yeah thank no you very much. much. If you have follow-up questions for me, let me know if you're curious about anything I said. I'm on Slack. I'm around. Cool. I'm pretty open when people ask me stuff, so feel free. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us. You can find us on either Stim Slack or Twitter. We'll leave the details on how to contact us under this episode in the show notes. If you have any concerns, then good. Peace. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, shit. We skipped the fourth and final scoop. We had four scoops? Yeah, we had four scoops. I think we, we even said we had four scoops. We had four scoops? I thought we had three. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Um. Yeah, uh, we need to correct this mistake oh, right shit. away. Okay. Hold. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. There's four rows in the spreadsheet. All right. Well, this new card that neither of us has seen before, at least I haven't. I don't know. You might have. You're the one who knew that we had this scoop, apparently. So Hansei Review is the name of this card. It is an operation. It is a transaction. It costs five, and it has an influence cost of one. The text on this card, gain 10 credits and trash one card from HQ. This card is sick. We uh, we kind of saved the best for after the credits, didn't we? This card's for... busted. <laughs> yeah, we saved it for after the credits because it gives you the credits. I hate the fact that we did this. Oh, God, that ruined everything. I slums to that joke. <laughs> right, it's like you can look at it in two ways. 
you can either look at it as a restructure that has a cost, or you can look at it as a restructure that does an extra thing. Because both are true depending on the exact situation you're in. The reason that it might be a restructure with an extra cost is if you actually have a shit ton of cards in your hand that are good and you don't want to trash any of them, kind of sucks to trash them. Or if you're in a situation where you're using Anedic Void, if you need these cards in hand, but you also need the money, it kind of sucks to have to trash a card. I think you're right. If you're doing other trashes with it, it might not be that great. But if your strategy is built around trashing, or you have ways to recur the cards that you trashed, or you're full slums and you're just not playing good cards, this card is really good. It's a lower threshold than IPO or restructure for the same amount of credits, and you can take the downside and get potential other value out of it. So the ID for Jinteki was spoiled in Community Week that gives you the credit if you have a face down in archives. This is better than an IPO or restructure in that ID. Mm-hmm. Also, it's only one influence. Building a better world? Right, one influence is huge. Yeah, in the factions that have good recursion, this card is sick. I think, honestly, the best scoop that we got? I would say definitely. It's the best out of the four cards we have. And I think it's the best both in terms of just the raw quality of the card and the fact that it's very interesting. I think that this actually gets us to an interesting place. It's no secret that ever since Jackson Howard rotated out, every corp has basically been looking for Jackson. Every corp's been looking for a replacement for Jackson. They kind of got a replacement for half of Jackson in Rashida, the tempo part of Jackson. No faction has really had a perfect Jackson replacement when it comes to the recursion part of the card. And that means that you end up with corps that are like, well, I'm playing three preemptive actions, but they're really clunky. And sometimes I have to do stuff like install agenda, install different card preemptive, just to get rid of one fucking agenda from my hand. I am so looking forward to games where I can say, Hanze review away an agenda into archives because I have the other one that I want to score in hand. Jam that agenda into the remote and then preemptive the agenda I don't need, my border control, and another card back. That's going to be sick. This paired with preemptive is a really good combo and, and really does help you do that hand filtering and agenda control. Way less awkward because that is the problem with preemptive. It's not the remove from game. It's not that it recurs three cards. That's all good. It's the awkwardness of having to let something sit in archives for a turn because you overdrew and had to discard it at the end of phase. I could definitely see a world where Jinteki potentially runs four or five shuffled back effects in a 45 card or in a 49 card deck or maybe they run a full three in a 44 card deck and some of those are genotyping because if you care about face downs and archives then genotyping is already arguably better than preemptive it also is one that you don't have to do as a terminal genotyping seems really really good yeah i'm excited to see what happens with Genteki. I'm excited to play Genteki with this new idea. I'm just excited to play this Hanze review. It seems like a fucking sick card. The fact that it costs five, God, that's just so good. I'm also wondering the way as Genteki that you used to punish people turning off 
whatever sort of value you had on archives. And that value varied depending on what the deck was. It might be increased trash costs if you're IG. It might be you got a successful run and it was cheap, so you turned off shipment from Tenon. But in this case, it's literally just cold hard cash. You turned off the money factory that it had in archives. I'm curious to see if we're going to get stuff for Jinteki to throw in archives to punish those runs. Because the problem right now is there is an extremely good Jinteki card that punishes running archives, and it's sitting on the ban list for good reason. What are the other cards that punish runs on archives? I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of News Team. That's expensive to splash, and you can't really do anything with the tags. Well, I was going to say there's GQ, except that that rotates. I guess there's the fact that they spent a click to turn off some credits, but we know from Pad Campaign that that math is usually worth it. Yeah, it's worth it unless you make archives not fun to run. If you want to get real spicy about it, you could throw a pupper on there or something. Well, wait, shit, pup's dead. Or one out per pup. We need to get a meme that's the what incarnation pup looking at the rotated list and being like, what incarnation? I'm raging. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Crick, but that rotates in Sand Sand. The way that you break Crick for value is you don't have to run archives. I think that the new Jinteki ID is going to be... And, and this might not be content for the podcast, but I think that the new Jinteki ID is going to be sick. You just need the one ice that they can't break for value, and then one face down, and you're pretty much HB all game, except you don't have to spend a click to do anything for that credit. Mm-hmm. It turns you into Plana, except you're 40 cards. Cards like Hansei Review, and honestly, just being a 40-card deck and drawing aggressively for agendas, gets you to a place where it is as easy to get the credit as it is for Polana, because you're naturally overdrawing in the search for agendas, or you're naturally trashing that card to get money to rush. And that puts you in a pretty good place, right? You're this 40-card rush ID that is also gaining money every single turn, that's kind of the best of all worlds. Like that's the place that I'm naturally going to think to start off as when I'm thinking of how to play Jin Techie in this new meta, which honestly to our listeners, that tells you that you shouldn't play it because like, if that's where my brain is, it's definitely bad. (laughs) I say having gone undefeated at court at world championships. (laughs) Cut the feed.